Hey there! Welcome to the very first podcast of Amazing Places. Uh, my name is Dean Murdoch. I am a former Saanich counselor and CRD director. And in my professional life, I dedicate my time to creating healthier, more dynamic, and vibrant communities. And this is a brand new podcast that I thought I'd try out, uh, where we're going to celebrate and talk about amazing places, talking about those people-centered, dynamic spaces and places that exist in our community here in the Capital Region and probably all over the world. I hope to invite special guests to uh, come on and join us to talk about great ideas and novel concepts and things that are being tried out all over the world that we could try right here in the Capital Region. So we're going to kick it off with a fantastic discussion with a friend of mine, Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Teal is an advocate for healthy, dynamic, exciting community spaces and places. And uh, among the many things that he spends his time doing, he's a member of the board of the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network. Welcome, Teal. Hey, it's great to be on, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So yeah, the, the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network is a group of people who are dedicated to placemaking in Victoria. Um, hence the name. And um, there's a bunch of people that work on various projects around transforming our communities, making public spaces, you know, more, more convivial. Um, I like to use the term, you know, softening the hard edges of the city. And um, I've been involved for many years now. And I've been heading up our pocket places project mostly, which is the project that helps build support and stock little free libraries around the city. And uh, my exciting news today, in fact, is that we have 326 little free libraries in Victoria. Wow! Um, I was out the other day with our bike trailer topping up books and I got to visit the newest one, which was just installed. And it is a little free seed library. So it's oh, an yeah. old newspaper box that's converted into a, a seed library down in James Bay. And it was absolutely delightful to get down there. And I, I dropped off some carrot seeds. But in addition to the Little Free Library project, I also um, am working on some other um, projects. One of them is on road murals. The idea of you know, putting a mural on the surface of the road, both as a way of transforming the community, bringing neighbors together, um, art, and also hopefully road safety. And, um, but the Placemaking Network does a bunch of other projects. We did a, a road mural installation downtown the other day and um, everything from street pianos to temporary installations, uh, public bench projects and all sorts of different things. And um, it's a great group, group of people who are really all about you know, taking public space, transforming it so that you can build community and connect people. Yeah, wonderful, thanks so much, Teal. I wanted to focus actually on a discussion uh, that Teal and I have had back and forth over the course of the last several months, particularly during the COVID period. Uh, we recently collaborated on an op-ed that we uh, sent into the Times Colonists, and they were kind enough to publish. And that op-ed was about um, using repurposing our road space, so looking at our, our sidewalks and parking spaces, and even in some cases, um, traveling lanes, to rededicate some of those spaces. So that we create people spaces. So now with some restrictions uh, on capacity within restaurants and pubs and cafes and shops, uh, we're finding that sidewalks are getting crowded with people lining up to, to get inside based on reduced capacity. And we're also seeing a demand from uh, businesses to open up patios or parklets for people to enjoy a coffee or a beverage or uh, even food or, or perhaps something else, that a book that they bought uh, in that spot. Um, great to see, and uh, Teal and I have been advocating through this op-ed to see more of that, that we see the desire and, 
desirability in bringing people together at, at a, you know an appropriate physical distance, but ensuring that people have those opportunities to enjoy their uh, towns and villages and cities and the and the, the dynamic special places that that we love so much uh, here in the capital region and in all parts of the world. We know that there's a real detriment, uh, psychological, uh, mental well-being de detriment in terms of social isolation and uh, how important it is to create those spaces and places for people to get together uh, so that they have those uh, relationships that you actually build communities and neighborhoods by by allowing those spaces to uh, to exist. And uh, Teal and I are arguing that this pandemic period is an opportunity for us to to do an assessment of, of those spaces that used to be dedicated to, to storing vehicles in terms of parking or multiple traveling lanes in multiple directions on one street that could maybe be better purposed uh, to create spaces for people. So we recently saw the city of Victoria um, undertake that, uh, that initiative in the much anticipated move to create pedestrian priority zones on Government Street. Is that something that you think we're going to see other communities begin to, to replicate? Is that a successful initiative? What, what do you think? I've been wanting that section of government to be pedestrian only for years. And yeah. um, I remember having a conversation with someone who had concerns about local businesses getting access to, say, lorries to drop off, you know, uh, supplies and things. And I said, look, there's a great solution to this. You have, um, you simply have dropping bollards, right? So there's these, you know, bollards that block off the road. And in Europe, they have these all over the place where they are able to drop, allow vehicles through with a, with a clicker or a button. And, you know, they can do that in the morning and then they leave and the bollard goes back up again. And the thing I really liked about that was it created a dynamic space where you're not just saying this space is just for this one thing, but the space changes based on the time of day. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, in the, eight in the morning, you know, maybe it's not the best time to you know, hang out in the patio. <laughs> you know, well, maybe it actually is. I'm, I'm not a morning person. But, um, you know, at night when deliveries are needed, you don't need to have necessarily people, people walking space. You can have that kind of convertible space. Uh, I did my grad school in Europe and have explored a lot of cities that are, you know, the old medieval core of the city is walk only or very limited vehicular traffic. And it definitely transforms the way people interact in that space. They spend longer there. Um, there were some studies that I was reading out of uh, England that showed that people who drove into the, England, uh, the core of London spent less money on local businesses than people who walked or took transit. Now, the first reason is probably because they have congestion charges and I'd rather spend my money on a coffee or on a nice new hat than on a congestion charge mm -hmm. um, and parking and gas and insurance, et cetera. Um, but the other one was because when you're driving, you're very much, you know, you're, orient you're going towards a goal, right? You stop your car, you pick up your thing, you leave. But when you're walking or as I do, cycling around town, you might stop, leave your bike on the side of the road, pop into a shop that catches your eye. So you're more likely to stop and interact with people. So creating walking spaces like government, I think it's great for businesses because they're going to get more people spending more time around them. You know, if I'm out shopping, um, lower government has some great shops. There's a excellent hat shop <laughs> a little further up, I think. Um, lush for buying shampoo and things. And if you spend long enough in those shops, you're going to want to get a coffee next door at the pub or, you know, wander down the street and maybe walk into the fun game store. So I think that's really useful. And the other thing that's worth mentioning for Government Street is that that's kind of a tourist core for Victoria. And I think that one of the, the risks you get is you want to have, not risks, but you want to encourage tourists to have like as good of an experience as possible. Tourists don't have cars. They're coming off buses or off the, um, uh, the cruise boats or, you know, visiting other ways. 
So creating space for them to interact um, and not have to worry about cars, um, I think I think it just generally creates more connectivity in that respect. And so yeah, I think I think it's excellent. And I really I really do like the idea of having the convertible space because it does allow for different usages and different modes, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the concerns that often comes up when you make something pedestrian only is that you know first of all local deliveries, so you can you can um, you know for businesses. And then also accessibility is an important aspect. And it's great to say, okay, no, this space is, is, a, is a walking space, but there's obviously some provision for people to use other modes, cycling, you know, perhaps electric scooters, um, and maybe even vehicles if necessary at different times of the day. But you're able to control the access to that space to make it more, um, more dynamic. Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing um, more and more shops and restaurants and cafes applying to the city of Victoria, for example, to uh, take over parking spaces in front of their, their shop in order to create patios. So like Pegliacci's, for example, took over four parking spaces on Broad Street in order to set up patio space so that people could eat at the restaurant uh, outdoors, uh, which, you know, I, I think a lot of people, particularly at this time of year, are really looking forward to doing and it reduces their their fear of the transmission risk with COVID, but I think really makes a very um, pleasant experience for folks. Uh, but, you know, the city is, is allowing these changes to take place under the guise of restarting the economy, trying to give a boost to, to businesses. Which, you know, I think as we argued in the op-ed is something that people are really keen to see. They, they want to see us uh, supporting businesses and ensuring that, uh, that we're creating those opportunities. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're seeing pushback from some businesses. There, there's the argument that taking away those parking spaces is going to put their business at risk. And, I, you know, it's an, an age-old argument. We've heard these things uh, time and time again, even though we're now seeing kind of quite a change as a result of, uh, of uh, this period. But what do you make of it? What, what is going on? Is this just that old way of thinking that I have to have parking spaces or my customers are just not going to come? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would say one of the things, I've had this conversation a lot because I do a lot of cycling advocacy as well. And people are always up in arms similarly, like, oh, we're going to lose 10 parking spots to put in a bike lane or something or a parklet and a bike lane or more than, more than just one thing. And it always kind of confuses me because, you know, all you need to do is go spend a weekend in Amsterdam to realize mm-hmm. what a city has been transformed by, you know, it's, it's been transformed by different modes and infrastructure, how it can look. But Amsterdam made a conscious choice to do that. And there was still resistance. And this is, you know, I think it was the 60s when they made this conscious choice to make mm-hmm. Amsterdam a cycling city. And they, they were committed to it. And it's not something that happens overnight. And so I feel like there's two, two answers to your question, I guess. The first one is, it's probably resistance, you know, um, and when things like COVID, resistance to change, that is. You know, when things like COVID happen, we, we look back to the previous ways of doing things. And I know in our op-ed piece, we talked about the new normal, because a lot of people are talking about returning to, you know, a pre-COVID era. Pre-COVID era was not a very good era. You know, it was a time when there was huge inequality, which we still have, by the way, you know, racism, bad infrastructure, right? Um, People being overly reliant on cars and a a host of other problems. I don't want to return to that. And I feel like though, it's more comforting to go back to what you know, right? So there's that aspect. And the other one I think is perhaps, I mean, a less, a lack of willingness to accept the data. Now, as I mentioned, you know, looking at the quantitative data for London, people who travel by other modes buy more stuff. So if you're running a local business, it makes sense to encourage people to use different modes because you're getting more people accessing your space. I mean, you can think of it even, you know, qualitatively, if only people can access, if people can only access your place of business with vehicles, 
then you're excluding a huge number of people who don't have vehicles like myself or who prefer to cycle or who perhaps um, would you know like to take another mode like transit and so you're actually closing your business off to other you know, you know other uh, potential customers and one of the things i know we were probably talking about the same story there was a story in Oak Bay recently where yeah, they're going yeah. to lose four parking spots and this was going to destroy their businesses according to a couple of local business owners. And my question would be more like, if your concern is accessibility, then we should have a longer conversation about curb cuts and accessibility for people who have, you know, who need access, better access. That's not going to be four parking spots. That's going to be things like, you know, having a deep dive into the built environment and how people who have mobility problems interact with it. But, so I think really it is a resistance to change. And perhaps one of the things I love that you can do is you can create these pilot projects. So the city of Victoria created a parklet downtown. You know, it's every day at lunch, it's full of people. And so you create these kinds of pilot projects to inspire businesses and to sort of to communicate to the public what these kinds of projects can do. And uh, that's really important because a lot of times, you know, we can't fly everybody to Amsterdam for the weekend, although that would be a very cool uh, citywide yeah. trip. Oh yeah. Well, I was talking to our, um, you know, the bike mayor of Victoria who was doing a lot of cycling advocacy and um, Susan Stokoff. And, you know, she, she went to Amsterdam and became completely inspired to dedicate herself to cycling advocacy as a result of just seeing what you can do there. And it's transformative. You know, here's the question I would ask for people who are listening, who maybe aren't quite sold. Although if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already are quite you're sold. You're a believer, very likely. But, you know, yeah. when was the last time you had a conversation with someone waiting at a stoplight, you know, in a car? I had a conversation with someone yesterday talking about books and bike trailers while I was waiting for the light to change, but I would never talk to someone in a car. It was another cyclist. Mm -hmm. And just those 20 second snippets of conversation at the lights is more human interaction than you'd ever get in a vehicle. So from a social perspective, it's critical. Like, like you mentioned, and I think we're going to talk about this more maybe in another time, but like the impact of loneliness is, is huge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was reading a study the other day about you know, it's being lonely is equivalent from your health perspective of smoking a pack a day or oh, wow. um, being morbidly obese. Um, and, the, you know, and Britain created a ministry of loneliness to deal with this yeah. problem. So these are, there's tangible health impacts to loneliness and that you might, you know, be slightly less lonely talking to someone when you park your bike, waiting for a light to change. That's not going to happen if you're stuck in a car. And um, so, yeah, there's I mean, economic impacts, there's health impacts all these reasons to you know transform our streets yeah we you know we we will talk more about isolation because i i do think that it's um it really is so important um and, and you know th what's so interesting about it is that it what's at the root of this is is not this kind of pitched battle between cyclists and drivers um that really w what's at the center of it is this desire for for better health and well-being and a healthy healthier population um, that, that we're genuinely interested in, in creating those opportunities for getting people together and, and creating those, those linkages that can exist and those opportunities for social interaction that would otherwise be missed out on if you were driving down the road and your, your automobile closed off from, from the rest of the world. I, I think what we're seeing during this COVID period is this desire to, to try something new and, and, and challenge some of those old assumptions and those old battles and, and rethink about the ways that we do come together and, and the, the space that we have allocated now, reimagining how that space uh, can take place in a productive way for, for our community. So I guess with that in mind, what do you think the prospects are that we're going to see these kinds of changes like we're seeing on Government Street and in front of the shops 
um, continue to take place? How, you know, that, that maybe we'll move past this idea of a pilot project and we'll begin to shift into something that's a, a little more permanent? I think that I'm quite optimistic about that aspect of it. I think that once you've built a pilot and you're able to both, you know, just show people how something works and also then measure the impact of that thing and, and really, you know, quantitatively demonstrate the effect of the thing, I think that has an impact on people. I mean, the example I'd probably use would be uh, Mayor Nenshi in Calgary. So I grew up in Calgary. And when I grew up in Calgary, there was probably maybe 50 meters of um, on-street bike lanes. There's a great... Um, uh, cycling path network but to get to the cycling network you have to go on roads there's no way to get there there wasn't at least and um, Mayor Nenshi did a bunch of pilot projects for protected bike lanes on certain streets and they're still there <laughs> right mm-hmm. um, you know, once you build the infrastructure and people get used to it um, and people start realizing how how impactful it is they they accept it right there's always that initial resistance and you know one of the things that always kind of um, baffles me is you know, we talk about cost, right? Here we are in Victoria, we spent tens of millions of dollars on a single interchange, um, which I think is just being finished, but they're still working on it. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, you know, people are up in arms about maybe a million bucks about, you know, like extensive section of protected bike lane, right? Like that's, yeah. it always kind of, it's kind of boggling. Um, but in a sense, I think you're really shifting the baseline, right? So once you do these pilot projects, you, you, you've said, you know, here's what we could do. Um, and we can do more. So hopefully it's a way of demonstrating a change to people. And a lot of that comes from interacting with the infrastructure. Um, and the other thing too, I find is with COVID, people's behaviors are changing. So people who may have previously say only driven to driven their car and not walked around their neighborhood are, are now walking more or taking more active transport because they are looking for opportunities to leave their apartments, for example. And mm-hmm. as a result, they're interacting with the urban infrastructure and realizing some of the deficiencies or they're interacting with good infrastructure and realizing how good it can be. Uh, and there's this kind of like the classic problem of if you build it, they will come. I know doing like cycling lane advocacy and people are saying, well, I don't, I never see anyone using it. And you're like, yeah, well, there's a hundred meters of protected bike lane, but there's no way to get to it at the moment. We're working yeah. on it. <laughs> don't expect there to be, you know, crowds of, you know, pelotons of people on that cycling lane until you have it connected to the rest of the network. But until that happens, you know, so that one always is, is, is interesting. And one of the things we talked about in our op-ed, which I wanted to make sure we definitely discussed, was yeah. not just things like parklets and helping local businesses, but transforming the space, you know, cycling networks and, and, and path networks to make them a bit more, um, I guess, not accessible, but more um, accommodating different modes. So one of the things I've been really passionate about is um, conversation cycling. So, you know, during COVID, you have people who are sort of locked at home or, you know, more isolated from other other people looking to be active and still interacting and so one of the challenges you run into is we have a pretty good um, bike network you know going north to south here in victoria if you want to go up to the ferry we've got the lock side and the the galloping goose trails but they're really narrow and i went out cycling with my partner uh, last month and we basically you put your head down and you cycle in a straight line because the path is too narrow for you to go side by side and have a conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it wasn't a very good experience i mean we just basically cycled somewhere. It was going from point A to point B. The journey wasn't at all entertaining. Had we been in a car, we could have listened to the same music. We could have put a podcast on. We could have had a conversation, but that wasn't possible because of the way the infrastructure was designed. So we haven't gone out cycling together in a while because mm-hmm. we might as well just sit at home and you know, do, listen to our own music anyways. Yeah. And so if we'd had wider cycling lanes and we could have conversation cycling, we would be out doing that more often. And we could, we could pass people at safe distances. We would be able to go do shopping trips together and things like that. And so I feel like, you know, as you, you see more and more people using these paths, 
and realizing they're quite crowded, hopefully that's going to encourage the expansion of that network, um, widening of the network to accommodate more people. You're absolutely right. You know, my partner and I were um, cycling the other day uh, on the Lockside Trail out to Sydney. And there are certainly places on the trail where we could ride side by side and socialize. But we joked with each other, you know, we each have some wireless headphones. And we joked that we probably could have just called each other while we were riding. And that would have been an easier way for us to have a conversation while we were going. Um, you know, there's um, there are people looking for those social opportunities, social cycling, as you say, and, and obviously walking. Um, not everybody wants to get their head down and ride 40k down the trail, and it's definitely not advisable to do that. The the trail um, gets pretty crowded with people and horses and terrain changes and uh, gravel in some places. Um, but, uh, you know, what about the idea of repurposing some of our road space, using some of that uh, road dedication to, to free up capacity so that we create an environment for, for more active transportation on the roadways? And then maybe that frees up the, the capacity on the trails to, to have a, a little slower pace to have more of that social opportunity for, for walking or cycling or, or multimodal use. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like one of the things, there's two aspects, things I want to talk about. One is bike superhighways because the Netherlands has these. You've got these incredibly wide, they're the same width as a normal, normal air quotes, um, North American road. And you quite literally have enough space for people on one side to be casually cycling with their children. And then, you know, mammals um, going straight down the middle at high speeds, you know, trying to get to work in 20 minutes or something. And so you create these kind of mixed use spaces. And you can see a little bit of this in Victoria. If you're going along the, the harbor, um, there's a section of the trail where you have a sort of a, a brick segment for pedestrians and then a cement segment for cyclists. And you can create these mixed use spaces. And in a sense, you know, the other, the other aspect to build on that is the idea of sort of road of equity, of, of road usage. You know, so if I'm cycling down Blanchard, which for people who are listening outside of Victoria is one of our major sort of arteries down the middle of the city, it's a three-lane highway with a tiny bike lane on the side. And that seems a bit problematic, right? Because you've got a tiny narrow road uh, lane for cyclists and three lanes for cars. But you could also have better pedestrian infrastructure. You could have two options for cyclists, a wider you know, lane for cyclists. Um, we're, giving, we're still giving a lot of emphasis to vehicles. Right. And so even if we were to say double the width of that bike lane on that section, you still have a disproportionate amount of, of real estate being given up to vehicles. And, um, and I think that it takes time for people to realize just how, what you can do to infrastructure. Cause we kind of say, Oh, you know, road is a road. Um, and I think if you asked a lot of people to draw a road, they would do a, you know, a, a black line with a dotted line down the middle of it. But a lot of people don't realize that, you know, early roads didn't have a dividing line, right? That was invented in California by you know, one person who was concerned about motor safety. And so ideally we get to a point where people are drawing roads where they have wide bike lanes down the sides or perhaps roads that aren't even used for, uh, for vehicles like Vunerfs, um, you know, which is a kind of the idea of a mixed use road. Um, I think there's a lot of different things we can be doing. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of sort of both encouraging people. And then I think the thing we talked about is like the mechanisms about how to do that, right? Because, you know, people who are sitting at home listening might think this is all fine and dandy, but I don't have my fingers on the pulse of the city or I'm, you know, I'm not sitting on the transport commission meeting. You know, what, what can mm-hmm. we do? And I think there's a lot of things that individuals and local government can do to sort of encourage this. And um, I probably hazard from the perspective of an individual, you know, actually actively supporting these projects, being a YIMBY for 
infrastructure, whether it's cycling lanes or parklets or just, you know, bylaws that ease the process for businesses to, to do mm -hmm. these, these kinds of changes. And then from a local government perspective, it's got to be experimenting and, be, you know, being comfortable with trying new things, testing them, measuring their effect. And then, you know, if they work, you know, powering ahead with those things. And if they don't work, maybe reevaluating them. And so there's lots of different things that can be done. And I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on other ways that people in local government can take an active role in, in ensuring that this kind of change lasts. Because that to me is, is a key thing. And it not just lasts, but is also we build on it. You know, we're, we're, we're being more constructive and progressive with what we're doing. Probably um, as a former elected official, I can say that, you know, uh, your elected officials, your, your councillors and mayor are going to be very responsive uh, to hearing from from you, from members of the public on on things that you want to see. I think, uh, you know, remember, uh, everybody needs to get reelected. And uh, in order to do that, they the elected officials need to to try try something different. They need to be responsive to, to what they're hearing from from the electorate. And um, and often that means uh, taking some risks, being bold. And I think uh, as you know, citizens, we need to encourage our, our elected officials to, to try something new, to not get stuck uh, in an old dynamic or adhering to old standards, but really be prepared to, to experiment and see if something will work, bringing in ideas from other communities and other, other parts of the world. Um, and see if it would work in Saanich, Esquimalt, Oak Bay, Victoria, View Royal, whatever the case may be. Um, get in touch with those folks and let them know that's something you're interested in and uh, is it something that could be tried in the community? Um, I work on a lot of other advocacy campaigns and other issues. And, you know, just because you have a brilliant idea and it's free or it say, would save the government money doesn't mean they're going to do it. Uh, you still have to create that public um, pressure to do for that thing to happen and you need sort of local leaders to step up and, and champion projects and then you're right like local government you know when they see a local champion stepping up also needs to be willing to to help lift them up and give them the resources they need thanks so much teal i think we probably have to cut it off there just uh give our listeners a break if uh, there's anybody out there listening other than than you and me um, but uh, I so appreciated the chance to, to chat with you about all of this stuff and uh, such a great conversation. I, I so enjoy the opportunity to, uh, to chat about um, creating community and, and getting people together and, and really making things uh, better for our neighborhoods and our neighbors. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to talking about all these different aspects of placemaking, community building. There's so much to do, and I, I'm actually looking forward to hearing some other episodes with other people so I can get some new ideas. I, I find myself talking a lot about libraries and road murals, but a little less about street pianos and public board games and uh, <laughs> carry streets and uh, wishing trees and all sorts of other little ways that people can transform their communities. So I, I can't wait to hear more. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for chatting with me. Thank you for making this such a, a great first uh, episode of the podcast. So uh, this has been Amazing Places. Uh, I'm Dean Murdoch. My guest today was Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Um, looking forward to uh, your joining us again. We'll be getting more podcasts up soon and uh, hope that you'll uh, continue to give us a listen. Now let's get out there and enjoy these uh, amazing places. <laughs>